You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, MD, Jawbreaker, Kenway, Toves, Loinin, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Legends, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we left the colony of Virginia in dire straits. Somewhere in the realm of 400 people had died either from starvation or from attack by the neighboring Powhatan Confederacy. John Smith was injured and he abandoned Jamestown to what they called the Starving Time a time during which the people of Virginia turned to cannibalism to survive. We're not going to revisit my feelings about John Smith, but they aren't good. The Virginia Company appears to have agreed. They appointed a man named Thomas West, the Baron de Loire, as governor for life of the Virginia Company. Now, the de Loire family was involved in the foundation of Delaware, but... We'll talk about that when we get to New England. We'll be calling the Baron de Loire, and later his sons, the Lords Delaware. That's how they are better known to history. There are quite a few names that we're going to be introducing this week, and they can get confusing, so I'm going to make a note of those that you really need to remember. You don't need to remember the names of most of the people in this story. For example, the acting governor of Jamestown after John Smith left, well, he was killed in a Powhatan raid in 1609. You don't need to remember his name. He was dead. But his death was consequential. It kicked off the first Anglo-Powhatan War. You also don't need to remember the name of the minor nobleman who succeeded him as governor. He was one of those that during the starving time, was permitted a ration of food due to his absolutely integral duties of paper signing and delegating work. He's one of those that survived the starving time. And I do wonder if he, in fact, delegated the duties of killing and butchering that teenage girl. It's clear I don't think much of the men who led Jamestown in her early days, but... 
I should cut them a little bit of slack. Getting word back to England was easy, but getting supplies to America was not at the time. And on that note, we actually should remember the name of Samuel Argall. He was a sailor who pioneered the northern sea route across the Atlantic. It was Argall that commanded the voyage that found Jamestown there on the brink of total destruction. Samuel Argall took command of the Jamestown colony and command of the forces he brought with him. He prosecuted the war against the Powhatan people and did well. He held the fort, literally, against the Powhatan, until, a few months later, Lord Delaware arrived with a small army. Delaware pushed the Powhatan back and really saved Jamestown for the English, but after some time he had to return to England. It was another acting governor, another name you don't need to remember, that captured the Princess Pocahontas. That's a story in and of itself, but apparently Pocahontas was treated well, according to her station, as a princess. That English governor negotiated a prisoner transfer, and Pocahontas was returned to her people, but eventually she was married off to an English planter, which established a tense peace between the English and the Powhatan people. The Powhatan agreed to allow the English to expand inland, to establish plantations on the mainland. John West the son of Thomas West and the new Lord Delaware, he built a tobacco plantation on a site that he coined West Point. It's, yeah, it's that West Point. All the other men of means that arrived in Virginia began to build tobacco plantations. That's why they wanted to go to Virginia in the first place. Tobacco was really profitable. At times, it was the most profitable commodity produced in North America. Beaver pelts and other parts of the beavers would give them a run for their money from time to time, and of course cotton would overtake it in the future, but for now, tobacco was king. The problem was labor. At first the English imported Irish rebels to work their fields, but, wouldn't you know it, a bunch of rebellious island dwellers didn't make good servants, and they turned out to be very good at escaping and stealing ships. So, to prevent any further piracy, the English decided to import convicted pirates. That lasted about ten minutes and very nearly set off another Anglo-Spanish war. Those English pirates kept stealing ships and running off to Tortuga or Abraham's Key and sailing with the buccaneers. But that left the English with the same problem, labor. Which brings us to perhaps the most consequential act of piracy in American history. This is episode 154, Grievous Crimes of Piracy and Murder. The meat of today's show is not about this most consequential act of piracy. We'll be talking about the most notorious act of piracy in early Virginia. But here, to begin with, I want to look at one particular ship's capture. A group of English pirates off the coast of Africa captured a Portuguese slave ship. They 
traveled to the West Indies, but they were chased off by Spanish naval vessels and landed in Virginia. Now, slavery wasn't yet legal in English territories, and they also had another provision against enslaving anyone who was a Christian. The Portuguese knew this, and thus they baptized all of those they captured as slaves. That made it doubly illegal for the English to enslave these men that they had captured. Instead, they were sold into indentured servitude. This was the dawn of the African slave trade in North America. As we all know, that will become one of the great horrors of human history. But there's not much to talk about when it comes to that particular act of piracy. What we usually have to go on in pirate stories are testimonies and affidavits, legal proceedings that people wrote down. But no one was keen to arrest or prosecute any of these pirates who had been involved in such a mutually profitable crime. They were paid and went about their merry way. The act of piracy that we're going to concentrate on today instead requires us to return to London, as well as the religious tensions that were about to tear England apart. Do you remember Queen Mary, Queen Elizabeth's older sister, known as Bloody Mary? Queen Mary was a devout Catholic. She married the King of Spain and tied England to Habsburg Catholic Europe. That alliance between England and Spain was facilitated by, among others, a family in England that was prominent and Catholic, the Calvert family. Now, the Calverts had a palace in a city called Richmond. Richmond is today a suburb of London, but at the time it was a separate entity. Richmond was also the home of the royal palace of the Tudors, Richmond Palace, and it was just down the street from the Calvert residence. Mary was very happy to live down the street from the Calverts, but Elizabeth, as it turned out, wasn't terribly fond of her neighbors who had facilitated the marriage between her sister and the King of Spain, her Catholic neighbors who were attempting to entice Elizabeth into that very same proposal. Eventually, the Calvert family left Richmond. They continued to own their property, but they went to their estates up north in Yorkshire. However, Elizabeth's policies of religious uniformity followed them even into the English countryside. The Calvert family adhered to these policies. They attended English Mass, but reports were filtering back to London about the reality of their religious beliefs. Reportedly, they had a priest that lived on their estate who held Mass for the Calvert family and who taught their son George. They taught him all about the doctrine of the Catholic Church and raised George to be a devout young Catholic. Upon reaching adulthood, George Calvert moved back to their palace at Richmond. To quote one Protestant, George Calvert turned Richmond, quote, evil with religion, 
end quote. That is to say, he made it a place of Catholic acceptance. George Calvert served as kind of a, kind of an unofficial envoy of Catholic English aristocracy to the courts of mainland Europe, the Habsburgs and Bourbon courts, which is why Sir Robert Cecil approached George Calvert to facilitate the transition from the Tudors to the Stuarts on the continent. He was to approach their courts and tell them that while this new Stuart king was going to be a Protestant, he was going to be a lot cooler about the whole Catholic thing. Robert Cecil was George Calvert's patron at court, and that was a relationship that led to Calvert's position on the Privy Council and then to see George Calvert succeed Robert Cecil as the Secretary of State. That's the reason that George Calvert named his eldest son Cecil. Cecil Calvert was close to the woman who would go on to be the Queen of England, Princess Henrietta Maria. The Calvert family actually played a role in her marriage to the Prince Charles. When the Stuarts announced their intention to marry the prince to a French Catholic princess, the Parliament balked at the suggestion, but the Calvert family suggested an alternative. They suggested a Spanish Catholic princess. The Parliament saw the lesser of two evils in the French princess Henrietta Maria. For all of the services that the Calverts had rendered to the crown, King James I raised George Calvert as the first Baron Baltimore. George Calvert's role in this story is over. Shortly after being raised to the rank of baron, he passed away. But his son took up his title and all his duties. Henceforth, we're going to refer to him strictly as Lord Baltimore. Lord Baltimore had a vision for a Catholic colony in America, a colony that could serve as a refuge for Catholics from England should the politics of the day turn against them, as it had in the past. It was also a place that could serve as an economic and potentially a military base for English Catholics. And I actually agree with this move. I think it was the right move. That might surprise you. I've been accused of having an anti-Catholic bias, but I don't. I do have an anti-monarchist bias, an anti-religious persecution bias, and during this period, especially on the continent, monarchism and religious persecution went hand in hand with the Catholic centers of power. But in England, the tables were turned. The Protestant Anglicans held all the power. The Catholics, who under Queen Mary had dished out their fair share of religious persecution, went on to endure their own religious persecution. Queen Elizabeth demanded the oath of allegiance and supremacy to the English Church. That was an oath required of all public officials and nobility in England, swearing not to undermine the English Church. It sounds draconian, and it was draconian, but much like the Edict of Nantes, it did give a modicum of freedom to the religious minority. But any freedoms given to you by a monarch 
can be just as easily swept away. It would be unfair, even maybe dishonest, to compare English Catholics to the Sephardi Jews in Spain, but much like those persecuted peoples who fled Spain and established a colony in Jamaica, I think it's a smart move for the English Catholics to flee England and create a Catholic colony in America. You need a backup plan, and this was theirs. Step into the hidden corridors of the past with Hometown History, where every episode uncovers the untold stories and secrets nestled in the streets and alleys of our own backyards. We bring history to life, revealing the extraordinary in the ordinary from local legends to forgotten tales that shape the communities we know today. Tune into Hometown History and embark on a journey through time, right from where you are. If you want nightmares, you are in the right place. I couldn't sleep last night after listening. This podcast is genuinely scary. That's what people are saying about Frightful. And if you'd like a few nightmares of your own, then how about you step this way? Hi, I'm Peter Laws, and I'm an author, journalist, and the host of Frightful, the podcast that is giving folks the serious creeps. From spine-tingling tales of the paranormal and shocking true crime to disturbing cults, possessions, and the forgotten horrors of history, Frightful is the podcast that pulls you into the darkness with immersive music, sound effects, and storytelling that is designed with one thing in mind, to get under your skin. With new episodes every other Sunday, you'll have plenty to keep that heart rate high. The good news is it's available free wherever you get your podcasts. The bad news is that after listening to this show, you might just have to spend a few more cents on electricity. After all, you're going to be sleeping with the lights on. So search Frightful in your podcast apps and I will see you there in the dark. Baron Baltimore planned to name his new colony after his friend and his queen, Henrietta Maria. He was going to name it Maryland. But there are, of course, other insinuations in the name of Maryland. There's the former queen, Mary. They called her Bloody Mary because of her persecution of English Protestants. Then, of course, there is Mary, the Mother of God, who is a powerful symbol in the Catholic Church and something of a lightning rod to Protestants, especially at the time. None of this sounded good to Lord Delaware in Virginia. Not only was this a Catholic colony on Virginia's doorstep, it was a Catholic colony in lands that, according to the Virginia Company Charter, belonged to him. And take a look at the symbolism here. Virginia was named after Queen Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen, a queen who was a hero to the Protestants in England and a, a witch to English Catholics. Maryland, on the other hand, was named after, well, take your pick, the Queen of England, a former Queen of England, both of them powerful Catholic women, or perhaps the most prominent Catholic icon in the world. And, you know, to name your colony after the Queen seems perfectly reasonable, an innocent and even patriotic move, but anybody paying attention 
would have seen what was being said here. And again, I'm not against this. I think that's kind of cool, actually. That's a, a bold declaration of intent and of allegiance. In the story to come, I do genuinely believe that both sides share the blame. Between 1629 and 1632, both sides fought a lengthy legal battle. There were suits and countersuits and arguments made to king and council and parliament. The Virginia Company argued their claim to the northern reaches of the Chesapeake, but at this point those lands were sitting empty. Well, not empty, of course, there were Algonquin tribes there, but there were no English settlements. Since those lands had been sitting empty of English colonists for almost 40 years now, King Charles I upheld Lord Baltimore's claim and inducted Maryland into the realm. Lord Delaware was angry about the decision, but publicly he respected the king's word. However, this was 1632. King Charles I was a deeply unpopular king. There was a lot of respecting the king's word going around while doing whatever it is you wanted to do. Now, understand that Lords Delaware and Baltimore weren't often in America. Both men were officially governors for life of their respective colonies, but in reality they were palatines. We might see that as similar to a viceroy in the Spanish Empire. They had factors and lawyers and agents there to see their will done, and always they had an acting governor or deputy governor or lieutenant governor running the colony. The details between those titles were typically in the scope of their power, but the job remained essentially the same. Baltimore, Lord Baltimore, had one man to do the job in Maryland, his brother, Leonard Calvert, his younger brother. All of those men we talked about earlier that you don't need to remember served as governor of Virginia at some point. Virginia had a lot of governors under Lord Delaware, and most of them, to our story at least, are relatively unconsequential. The next name that we're going to introduce, though, you do need to pay attention to. Lord Delaware's opening political salvo against Lord Baltimore came from his four top agents in Virginia. Three of those names you don't need to know. One was a governor, one was a future governor, and they were all wealthy planters. But the fourth name, to quote John L. G. Chamet in Pirates of the Chesapeake, quote, was a 34-year-old stockholder in the Virginia Company, a hearty, pugnacious, well-educated man named William Claiborne. Claiborne had been a friend of Captain John Smith in London and secured a three-year appointment as surveyor to make a map of Virginia. Possessed of courage, industry, and resolve, Claiborne could little guess that he would one day be branded a pirate. Nor could he foresee the turmoil his singular enterprises would inflict upon the political geography of the entire Tidewater region. End quote. William Claiborne and those three other, quote, persons of quality and trust, end quote, signed a letter. That letter, written to King Charles, alleged that Lord Baltimore had refused to take the oath of allegiance and supremacy to the Church of England. 
Regardless, though, nothing came of that accusation. So Lord Delaware chose to take a more direct course of action, and he did so through William Claiborne. Claiborne had some radical leanings. He was an Anglican, a vocally zealous Anglican, but Claiborne was sympathetic toward the Puritan cause. He was a little bit militant in his opposition of the king's conciliatory policies, and the Puritans were at the fore of the militant anti-royal movement. Claiborne proposed a plan to the governor of Virginia. If Maryland's claim on the northern Chesapeake was based in Virginia's lack of settlements there, well, what if Virginia beat the Catholics to that region and established a settlement? Claiborne proposed to build a trading post that would deal in Native American goods. But more than anything, the trade was in furs. Claiborne suggested a large island in the Chesapeake for his trading post, an island that was perilously close to the coast of Maryland. Lord Delaware, the governor of Virginia, and William Claiborne all agreed to work together in this matter. They claimed the island and called it Kent Island. And I'd love to paint this as another symbolic victory, but Claiborne was just from Kent. It wasn't named after Canterbury Cathedral. There was no symbolic blow made, at least not that I can see. But there was a very real, tangible, strategic victory. Claiborne was building a trading post on an island. That meant that they would have to build docks and shipyards and all of the infrastructure needed to facilitate a fleet. Of course, they would be home to only merchant ships, but those merchant ships would have to be armed. There were threats out there, after all. Thus began a race in 1632, just after Maryland was inducted into the realm. There was Claiborne and Delaware on the one side against Baltimore and Calvert on the other. Claiborne traveled to London. He secured a royal patent for the trading post on Kent Island, and he secured investors. With their money, he bought supplies and ships, and managed to recruit men for his venture, and then he sailed back to America to build his settlement. Now, the ground had already been broken, but now that it was all official, construction could begin in real earnest. When the very first colonists bound for Maryland arrived, Kent Island, just off their coast, already had a dock and a mill and a church and houses and gardens and orchards and a cattle yard. There were hundreds of people living on Kent Island, just off the coast of their land. By the time Leonard Calvert arrived at their settlement at St. Mary's, Kent Island was firmly ensconced. Lord Baltimore and his brother Calvert were furious. However, Kent Island had all of the proper licenses and forms. They were fully legal and accredited. They couldn't just kick Claiborne out. So what followed here was this oddly polite battle of words. A letter from Lord Baltimore to his brother said that he was, quote, willing to give all the support to Claiborne he can to proceed, end quote. 
Claiborne's fur trading operation was profitable, and clearly he had the drive to succeed. However, William Claiborne was Virginia's Secretary of State. Kent Island was represented in the Council of Virginia. They made it very clear that Kent Island, just off the coast of Maryland, belonged to Virginia. Lord Baltimore made it clear that William Claiborne would be allowed to keep Kent Island, that he could enjoy all of the profits that she offered, but Baltimore required that Kent Island seek representation not in the Council of Virginia, but in Maryland, which was difficult. Aside from his trading post on Kent Island, Claiborne had large tracts of land that were currently being worked in tobacco production. He was a resident of Jamestown, as well as Kent Island, and the Secretary of State. Well, it wasn't going to fly. Once again, the lawsuits and the official requests and the cutting words flew around London. Those appeals once again reached the desk of Charles I, but Donald Chamet writes, quote, The unwillingness of the king and council to rule directly on the matter would, in a very short time, lead to charges of piracy, bloodshed, and the first naval engagement between English-speaking people in the New World. End quote. This war of words, though, continued on peaceably for well over a year. Everyone here was making money. They didn't want to put a stop to that. But things took a turn for the worse there in Maryland. The Algonquin people on the mainland that lived nearby were not part of the Powhatan Confederation. They were a people called the Patuxent people, and they were initially friendly to Maryland. But in the summer of 1634, the Patuxent began to grow suspicious of the Marylanders. They grew hostile toward them. One Jesuit priest, Father Andrew White, noted the suspicious nature of these tidings. He wrote, quote, At this time, Captain Claiborne was there, from whom we understood the Indians were all in arms to resist us, having heard that sixty Spanish ships were coming to destroy them. The rumor was most likely to have begun from himself. End quote. Father Andrew is saying here that he believed William Claiborne planted this fear in the Patuxent people. It kind of makes sense Claiborne had a lot of dealings with the Patuxent through his fur trade business. And Father Andrew wasn't alone in that belief. In 1634, a resident of Jamestown of Virginia, a fur trader named Henry Fleet, came forward with accusations that William Claiborne was doing exactly what that priest believed. Lord Calvert was furious. He demanded that action be taken, and right here, in the summer of 1634, we need to look very carefully at the timing of everything that's to come. Henry Fleet made his accusation in early June 1634. Immediately, William Claiborne was arrested and sent to jail in Jamestown, Virginia, not Maryland. As soon as Claiborne was arrested, Calvert sent a letter off to his brother, Lord Baltimore, to inform him of these treacheries. 
On the 20th of June, a couple of weeks later, on the banks of the Patuxent River, a group of people met. There were Patuxent elders, and there were councilmen and commissioners from Virginia and Maryland. There was Father Andrew, and then Henry Fleet, and William Claiborne. This wasn't a trial, but it was an investigation. They wanted to get to the bottom of what had happened here. The questioning, once they actually asked those Patuxent elders what had happened, didn't take very long. It revealed that William Claiborne had not, in fact, told any falsehoods. He had not spread any of that fear to the Patuxent people. Someone had, though. Henry Fleet, the man who came forward with that accusation, was jealous of Kent Island. He was a fur trader, and Kent Island was taking most of his business. He heard the rumors of Claiborne's involvement, and tried to capitalize on them. Henry Fleet was arrested, and Claiborne was totally exonerated. Within a week, another flurry of letters sailed off to inform everyone, from Lords Baltimore and Delaware to the Virginia Company and the company that invested in Kent Island, Cloberry and Sons, and even the King and the Council, everyone in England was informed of the results. Everything appeared to have been cleared up. Everything appeared to be smooth sailing. However, those letters, well, it took time for them to reach England. The first letter that informed Lord Baltimore of the arrest arrived first. Baltimore was naturally furious at this. He sent orders back to America that if William Claiborne continued operating, he should be arrested and sent to a jail in Maryland. Kent Island would be seized. If they had to, they would blockade all of her harbors. Lord Baltimore shot those letters back to America on his very fastest ships, and he sent supplies and guns and men. He was making war here. He did all of this amazingly quickly, almost suspiciously quickly, as though he may have had some prior warning of what was to come. On the 22nd of July, in response to that same bit of news, the Lords of Trade and Plantations and the King both penned two pairs of letters. Those letters ordered everyone in Virginia and Maryland to just relax to chill out here. No one is to fight over this. No one is to be executed, unless, of course, the king ordered it, because, after all, everybody here was English. Everybody was working toward a common goal. Plus, you know, the French have this monopoly on the fur market, so let's not work at tearing down the most successful fur trader in America. Everybody put down your pitchforks and learn to work together. A few Days later, in a very short time after those letters left England, the letters that informed everyone about the trial and the exoneration reached England. Baltimore, Delaware, the Virginia Company, Cloberry and Company, the Lords of Trade, the King, everyone now knew that those charges had been trumped up. They had to do everything they could to stop anything untoward from happening. And to their credit, they tried even, though he didn't try terribly hard, Lord Baltimore. 
But by the time their attempts to stop whatever was coming reached America, it was too late. By the time their orders to lay down their arms arrived to their underlings, blood had already been spilled. Men had been killed and honor had been insulted. Next time we're going to continue on with the drama between Virginia and Maryland as the political and religious climate in England and the English colonies builds toward a crescendo and the outbreak of war. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us a rating or a review. Everybody who has signed up to help the show through the website or PayPal. And everybody who has recommended this show online or in real life. And I saw one of you posting pirate memes about Francois Lolonet. I'm glad I could send you down that rabbit hole. All of you make this show possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the absolutely fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't yet checked them out, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly... Thank you for listening. Tonight